Judges 13. And we'll start with the passage, uh, verse 1 through to 7. Judges 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. And if we move over to chapter 13, verse 24, we see God keeping his promise. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahanan Dan between Zorah and Eshtol. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. 
In it was a swarm of bees and some, sun, some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. A man uh, dedicated to God who's going to save his people. Uh, so far, though, uh, he wants to marry a woman who worships another god and uh, eats out of an unclean dead animal. Not a great start. Uh, things tend to go from bad to worse, though he does defeat some enemies here and there. Eventually they capture him, gouge out his eyes, and that's where we pick up the story that Emma's going to read for us. So if you want to flick over to chapter 16, we'll begin at verse 23. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to celebrate, saying, Our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more while he when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. And we'll keep that uh, passage open there uh, from Judges chapter 16, or you can flip back to 13. That's where we'll be uh, kicking off uh, going through this evening. Uh, there's also an outline uh, that we would have got on the way in uh, that gives you a bit of a picture of where we're headed tonight. Uh, but I want to start with a question. I want to start with the question on the sheet there. Uh, what would you do if you had superpowers for a day? Are we, can, can you, um, you need to start the PowerPoint out of the um, thing for me so I can control it. That'd be great. What would you do? Awesome. Uh, what would you do if you had superpowers for a day? Where would you spend your time and energy? What would you do? Uh, my wife and I quite like watching uh, superhero movies. Uh, I, I'm glad about that because I enjoy it as well. Uh, you know, Marvel Universe, Captain America, Iron Man, uh, the Hulk and the rest. In fact, we're watching uh, a series at the moment called Supergirl. Uh, it's a little, little cringeworthy, I have to admit, uh, but pretty light entertainment uh, and Soph enjoys it, so that's great. But often there's a question uh, about what uh, should a hero do um, when 
So what should a hero do with their superpowers? Uh, what would be right for them to do? What would be not right for them to do? Uh, and what, what should they do when they get it wrong? Uh, is it everything black and white? Or are there some times that there's going to be things that are a bit grey? That might be a fun uh, discussion, though. Uh, over supper a little later, uh, what would you do uh, with superpowers for a day? Um, or maybe something to pass the time on a boring car trip. But the man that we actually see in the passage tonight, Samson, he had that choice almost every day of his life, didn't he? He's the, this is the he-man of the Bible, Samson. And what does he do with his superpowers? Why does he have them? What should he do with his powers? And what do these chapters here of Judges uh, have to speak to us today, as God says that his word still speaks? Uh, just uh, as we uh, get into this, I just want to mention that uh, there's some great uh, talks by a guy called Charlie Skine uh, from a, a church in London, uh, St. Helens Bishop's Gate. If you wanted to, uh, I found them particularly helpful thinking uh, deeply about uh, judges and so if that's something that you want to keep doing and thinking a bit more about. If you haven't had enough, when we come to the final week next week, you can go look up this guy. But let's turn uh, into chapter 13, get stuck in part one, great beginnings. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Not sounding like such a great beginning, James. Uh, and the next bit, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Yes, not so great. Uh, and, and 40 years, like, I won't ask you to put your hand up, but who remembers 40 years ago? Like, I don't. I wasn't alive. Yeah, um, that's like a whole generation, though, in one sense, of people that could have grown up and not know anything different. This is, this is significant, a big, big amount of time. But from verse 2, we do start to get something unexpected, something great, a great beginning, don't we? Verse 2, a man from Zorah named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was sterile and without children, without child. Sorry. There we go. Thank you. Uh, had a wife who was sterile and without child. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, uh, but you are going to conceive and bear a son. And a little bit further down in verse 5, uh, notice this. The, the boy is to be... A Nazarite. There's special rules that are mentioned. The boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. And notice carefully here, he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now this, this is pretty amazing indeed. This is a great beginning. The, it's the account of Samson's parents here, even before he's conceived and, and then of his birth... On the biblical scale of how important this makes it, it's kind of right up there. Uh, not only is this the only judge in the book of Judges that we hear about before he's born in that sense, but we haven't been this excited uh, about the birth of someone since the birth of Isaac. You know, Abraham and Sarah, too old to have children, uh, and they have Isaac. We've got the whole gamut. We've got the barren woman. We've got, you know, unable to give birth. The angel appears, uh, special instructions, not only for the, for, the, for the child, but for the woman while she's pregnant. Uh, and then we've even got this cool campfire trick 
that the angel does over in verse 20. We didn't read it, but you might uh, want to read that a little later on. This is almost as big as Christmas. Big time. Notice the repetition here. The writers of ancient Hebrew, you see, they didn't have the kinds of fonts and typefaces that we have these days, especially, you know, what, what's that one going around at the moment? Laurel or Yanni or something. Anyway, they couldn't bold or underline things uh, in, the, in the Hebrew text. Um, and so what they did for emphasis uh, was to repeat things. Do you notice the special instructions um, there? We get it three times. No vine products Nothing unclean. We see it, verse 4. Uh, then the woman uh, goes to her husband and tells, tells him, tells Manoah, verse 7, we get it again, to over the page. Manoah's kind of not satisfied. He wants to, you know, maybe he's like a nervous first-time dad. He wants to speak to the doctor himself kind of first, at first hand. And so we get it again in verse 14. What's the writer here trying to get us to notice? Well, it's got to do with this thing called the Nazarite vow. It's not something we're very familiar with, uh, but you can read a bit more about it in Numbers chapter 6 if you'd like to. Uh, it's a voluntary vow that uh, someone made to set themselves apart to the Lord, uh, for a time that is, a time of particular devotion to the Lord. Uh, there was a special diet uh, that went along with it. It's not the uh, gluten-free, kind of dairy-free, but it's the vine-free and unclean free. Okay, why is this so important? What's, what's significant about this for Samson? Well, for him, unlike the other, the normal kind of Nazarite vow, voluntary vow, this was his, him being set apart for the Lord was something that was to cover his whole life. From before he was born, his conception until the day of his death, verse 7. Now, as we hear about this kind of great beginning, what's your response to this news? to this news that one is going to be born a, a Nazarite. It's a, it's a little bit kind of, might be a bit, you know, I don't, I don't really know. It's, I suppose it's good kind of thing. Um, someone who's going to, be, who's going to be holy, set apart to the Lord. Maybe I'm going to feel a little bit um, self-conscious in their presence. Um, maybe it's even a little bit disappointing if you're a, a big fan of, you know, grape juice and going hunting and killing things. Um, but to the faithful Israelite here, at the time of Judges, this is awesome. It sounds like we've finally come to the one, we've finally found the one that we need. The wait is over. The endless cycle of spiralling down and down and down has come to an end. We've got someone of holiness, set apart and pure, not ruled by sinfulness, falling into the patterns of the people in the nations around them or leading them into idolatry like Gideon kind of ended up doing. This is the kind of saviour we need to save us from sin, from the consequences. Imagine, just imagine if we had someone who could finally and completely save us from the consequences of our sin. And this is the kind of ruler not only to save us, but to keep us from sin. Imagine if we had someone who could finally keep us on the right track, not just kind of obeying God on the outside, but on the inside, holy to the Lord. Here, 
Here it seems as well like the people have got the model for holiness that they need as well. Someone who's going to be able to lead them in being what they were called to be back in Exodus chapter 19, a holy nation, a royal priesthood set apart for God. This is just what the Israelites needed. But it's not only the Israelites who need it. This is just, in fact, what we need too. As God calls his people to be holy. Now, all of this is just brilliant, right? Uh, It's fantastic. And in fact, it's made even more brilliant by the fact that if we remember that normal pattern of judges so far, as as we've been kind of going through, uh, you get the the turning away from God, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, being handed over to their enemies, and then the people cry out. But this time, the Israelites don't even cry out. Did you notice that? Verse 1 and 2, it just kind of goes straight on. The Israelites did evil, verse 1. The Lord hands them over, verse the second half of verse 1, and then verse 2, straight into the Lord sends an angel to the man of of Zorah. This is God's grace. While we were still enemies, while we were still sinners. We've got a great beginning. Uh, A promised son to be born. And verse 20, as we read, uh, 24, sorry, as we read of, of chapter 13, the woman gave birth. This, the word of the Lord through the angel came true. And, and God is with this one. The Lord blesses him. His spirit is on him. Uh, and what it says there about, uh, it began to stir while he was in Mahaneh Dan. Mahaneh just means camp. It's the camp of Dan. Because see, if you see, remember, um, We've got Dan in that red bit kind of up there. This is a, a, I've zoomed in on kind of the map of the promised land. Uh, you've got uh, the Dead Sea down here, River Jordan, and then sort of Galilee, uh, sorry, Sea of Galilee's up there. Um, so Dan, this, is, this was the tribal kind of allocation. Um, but if you remember back at the beginning of Judges, the Danites didn't actually move into their land, um, especially down on the coastal plain, because, it, it, as it said there, it was sort of too hard for them. They kind of didn't do that. They didn't drive the Philistines out. In fact, the Philistines uh, or the Amorites uh, forced them back up into the hill country, which is kind of up this way. Um, okay, so here we are. There's, look, a little thing which is pointing to Zorah and Eshtael. So they're, they're sort of Danites. They're camping out. Well, we've got someone who's holy. We've got someone who's being raised up for God, by God to deliver the people. And things are looking pretty good. Maybe you know, thing, it's, it's time to sort of crack some Philistine skull here. You know, we're, we're going, to get, going to get messy. We'll see. Here we go. Chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah. Now, where's Timnah, you say? Well, Timnah is just there, just kind of next. So he's gone down towards the, the plain where all the, all the enemies of God's people are. He's going to do something here. This is good. Um, and, he, and as he... They go. It's, it, he's, it sounds like it's going to be so good, but sadly, sadly, Samson is afflicted with eye disease. And I don't. Uh, I'm not talking about a new kind of release uh, product in the Apple techno ecosystem uh, that's about to come out. Even though I'm sure they certainly foster this thing. Uh, what is eye disease? Well, look with me. Verse one of chapter fourteen. Samson went down to Timnah and he saw there a young Philistine woman. He saw. 
Seeing uh, is actually going to be something quite significant uh, through the... uh, through this narrative of Samson and onwards uh, in Judges. Uh, We're going to see lots of it, in fact, uh, along the way. Um, We'll come back to that in a moment, but just notice what he he says. Uh, I have seen, again, verse 2, a Philistine woman, now get her for me. Um, He wants, sorry, he sees, he wants. And so he says, get her for me. And despite Manoah and his wife's attempt to do what's right actually in the eyes of the Lord, this isn't kind of them being racist or culturally conservative. It's about obeying the Lord, doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord as they don't go and marry those who don't worship the Lord. But despite that, Samson wants her and his will prevails. Verse 3, we see it at the end there, get her for me for she, she's the right one for me. Now, uh, it's a little bit of uh, this phrase here, she's the right one for me. Uh, there's another uh, English translation which I think just helps us to see some special significance of what Samson's saying here, uh, which is quite helpful, and I'll read it to you. Notice what it says. Get her for me, for, and notice this, she is right in my eyes. That's what he says. She is right in my eyes. And this idea... This phrase, what is right in your own eyes, what is right in Samson's eyes, it so captures up as one of the, the significant, most significant guiding forces in his life, uh, as we see. And as we'll see in, on in Judges, it's the same disease that Israel has, eye disease. He does what's right in his own eyes and so he takes... And Samson, with all the God-given strength that he's been given, is very good at taking. Now, as I talk about this, talk about this eye disease, you, you know what I'm talking about. You know what this is talking about, don't you? You like what you see. You want. You take. It's a little bit of a trivial example, uh, but when it comes to sweet things, I'm a sweet tooth. Very rarely do I even need to see before I want and then I go looking for so that I can take and eat. But that, that, those uh, actions together, seeing, desiring, taking, is that familiar at all? When she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Seeing, wanting, taking. It's not new, is it? What is it for you? What is it your eyes land on? What is it that your heart desires? What do you consider about how you might come to possess? Is it possessions and, and wealth? You know, the big things like the car, the house, the, 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 the location. Is it smaller things, the clothes, the, the toys? Which shop does it for you or, or catalogue? Or is it a certain man? Or a certain woman? 
Is it what you see on that ad or on Facebook or on the internet? Is it something a little less concrete? Is it the attention of others? Is it your own comfort and happiness? Is it freedom and control? We live and breathe the air of a world that is afflicted with eye disease. Seeing, wanting, taking, don't we? Doing what is right in our eyes rather than in the eyes of the Lord. And we need a saviour to rescue us from it. Not, not one who's going to lead us deeper in under its control. Well, Samson's eye disease doesn't just, it doesn't just take him into the minefield of an intimate relationship with someone who doesn't follow the Lord, but it actually takes him in opposition to the very ways he was to be set apart. You see, remember those uh, rules that we got uh, back in chapter 13? Uh, we heard them three times. Uh, for, for Samson's life as a Nazarite, uh, he was specially set apart, uh, and that was kind of evidenced in no vine products, nothing unclean. Uh, as well as no razor on his head. It seems pretty clear, really. Yet by verse 6, if you notice, uh, we've got Samson standing in the middle of a vineyard, a vineyard holding a dead body. Okay, Samson, you know, maybe it's not his fault. You know, this is just kind of Superman working out his powers, not sure how strong he is. You know, he's kind of rip a line in two. Maybe it's not his fault. Uh, Well... On the second pass, let's have a look. Verse 8, Samson can't resist, can he? Eye disease is in control again. Notice what it says. He turned aside to look, to see the lion's carcass. And what does he see? He he sort of pokes around in there. He sees some bees. He sees some honey. Who can resist honey, wild honey? Uh, when it comes to honey, I'm someone who uh, takes after my dad uh, in that. I often have uh, bread with my honey um, rather than the other way around. Uh, not to mention I don't like things to go to waste, anyone who's uh, come and uh, had dinner at my place or something. Um, and so, you know, the whole idea of scooping honey out of a, a dead animal, you know, that's like pretty close to something that I would try. Certainly, you know, honey on the, on the side of the, you know, the road or something. Um, but for a Nazarite, A dead body is unclean. Strictly speaking, he shouldn't have killed the animal. Um, He shouldn't be touching it. Uh, He certainly shouldn't be eating out of it. And he shouldn't be leading others to do the same. Maybe we'll just sort of keep that little one, try and keep that little one secret again, he thinks. Well, as the narrative continues, we see that Samson's eye disease isn't actually just about his eyes, what he sees... uh, It's actually also eye disease. It's all about him, capital I. Notice he comes to his comes to his wedding, and what's he thinking? He's thinking, now, what can I get out of this? Verses twelve and thirteen. I've got just the riddle, an unfair riddle, in fact, that he proposes to the local boys. That's a pretty sure thing when it's going to come to to making a buck on the side. The boys from the neighbourhood down there in Timnah, they're not happy, uh, and they put some more than just a little pressure on his lovely lady. 
can, it's sort of a little bit unfathomable. Uh, verse 15, tell us or we will burn you and your family. Incredible, you think. Maybe, you know, you think being engaged to He-Man, surely she could have said something to him and Samson might have done something, but it's really Samson's fault here. Samson's really just thinking about one person, I. And either he doesn't notice or he doesn't, doesn't care. Now, uh, she turns on the waterworks, uh, probably in fact genuine tears uh, by the end of the week when she's fearing for her life, uh, and Samson finally gives in. A moment later, verse 18, the boys are back with the answer. Not happy, Jan. Samson goes off down the road uh, to the next Philistine town, Ashkelon, kills 30 men, 30 men, that you know, the first 30 that he runs into, presumably, strips the clothes off the dead bodies, drags the clothes full of blood back to his own wedding feast, drops them on the floor, there you go, there's your clothes full of blood, and after, you know, getting all that energy out, he's still fuming, he stomps off home in hot anger at the end of chapter 14, and his wife is given to someone else. Now let's just pause for a moment here. Uh, Samson has just killed 30 Philistines, 30 of the enemies of God's people, of those who opposed God, of whom uh, Israel were to drive out. But how do you feel about it? This is what he came to do, right? You know, to, to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. You know, 30, that's just 30 down, you know, thousands to go, excuse me, thousands to go, he's just getting warmed up. But we don't, we don't like it, do we? Why are you uncomfortable with it? Do you want saving on these terms? Saving by someone in their hot, flying off the handle, out of control anger. Someone acting out of personal Vengeance, a vendetta. He's as bad as the Philistines in the threats that they were making, only he goes through with it. And things go from bad to worse. Tit for tat, it continues. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, I'll have my wife now, he says. Sorry, too late. Now I'll really get even, he says. Verse 3. And off he goes to catch some foxes. I've never caught a fox before. Uh, I presume you use a trap or something like that. I don't know if he did that to get 300. But there we have it, 300 foxes with tails lit running through the grain harvest. This isn't just a prank kind of gone wrong, a little bit overboard. No, no, this is a one-man famine burning the food of the people. Human vengeance is focused on oneself and is very rarely actually justice, isn't it? Even though it's often performed in, in that name. Very easily gets out of hand. The woman and her family, well, they end up being burned alive. And again, Samson's looking for revenge. Verse 8, uh, you know, there we go, another bunch of people killed. But are we happy? No, not really. And neither, it seems, is Judah, people of Judah. They, they, they're the very people, you know, he's supposed to be delivering from the hand of the Philistines. And here they come, chapter 15, verse 11, to hand Samson over to them. They've had enough. They're sick of him. 
All you've done is make our powerful overlords unhappy. Now that's, you know, there's problems with their view as well, but he hasn't done well. And if we go down to verse, uh, the end of chapter 15, verse 20, although Samson led Israel for 20 years, do you notice what the days are called there? Chapter 15, verse 20, it's the days of the Philistines. He doesn't stop them being overlords of his people. He's still stuck very much in the control of his eyes. Immediate desires must be satisfied. But something might maybe change that in verse 16. The Philistines through someone called Delilah. Now this uh, Delilah, she sounds like a very crafty, cunning uh, young woman, you know, a would-be spy with... uh, Did you notice the secret, the way that she so cunningly deceives Samson into telling him where the power of his strength lies? Chapter 16, verse 6. Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Just, you know, hypothetically speaking, maybe, you know, how would one... You go about that. Well, he tells her his hair is cut. The Lord leaves him. And interestingly, verse 20, did you notice that Samson actually still expects to get up and shake himself free? But he does not know that the Lord has left him. At this point, the Philistines, you might say, permanently kind of cure him of his eye disease. They gouge out his eyes and bind him in shackles. A man led by doing what was right in his own eyes, now without eyes to see. He's been morally blind, it seems, all along, and now the Philistines have just made it physical. He really needs a rescue, just like Israel. Or quickly now, is what do we make of this end here? Is this a redeeming kind of end for Samson? Uh, is it good or bad? You know, on the one hand, we've got, you know, the 3,000 Philistines. Uh, you know, I suppose that totals it up to, to 4,030 Philistines that he kills. But 3,000 in one go, that's, that's pretty good, you know. But compared to some of the other judges, you know, 3,000, that's just small fry, really. You know, we're talking tens of thousands. And what about the verdict that we get in the end of verse 30 uh, that was read for us, Emma read for us? Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Is that a, is that a good verdict or a bad verdict? Uh, I kind of, I'm not sure I'd quite like the statement on my life to be, well, the, the best thing that he ever did for us was die. But, yeah, like it's, it's a bit... Hard to, it's a bit grey. He does call out to the Lord though, doesn't he? Uh, We see it there in verse 28. He calls out to the Lord. That's an expression of faith, of trusting God. That's where that comes from. Maybe that's in particular what's being picked up on in Hebrews. And he does teach the Philistines a lesson, doesn't he? You know, there they are celebrating, our God, Dagon, has delivered our enemy into our hands. Well, no, it wasn't Dagon, it was the Lord who was in control. But even, sadly, even without his eyes, 
his capital I disease is still very much alive. And sadly, in a way, Samson's finest hour is not for the glory of God or for his people, Israel, but is motivated by Samson's personal vengeance for his two eyeballs. Verse 28. At the beginning, I asked you what you would do with superpowers for a day. Well, that was virtually every day of Samson's life. And look what he did with it. But in another sense, look what we would have done with it. There's a phrase uh, which I think is helpful to remember. There, but for the grace of God, go I. I do just the same thing, apart from God's kindness and grace in stopping me. But just think, just think what could have been if Samson had have, you know, been devoted to the Lord on the inside, like a Nazarite on the inside, not just on the outside. What he could have done to defeat the enemies of God's people by God's grace. In God's kindness, he's never beyond hope. This kind of end, even though there's all that mixed mixed motivation and things. He's not beyond hope. God doesn't desert him. God still uses him to bring about a victory. And in fact, wherever we are, we're never beyond hope. God can still use you, use us, can work through us for good, even in our rebellious choices. But just think what could have happened if he offered himself in a self-sacrificial, not I, service to the Lord. Paul, the Apostle, writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. I'm going to finish in just a moment. But rather than finishing with I at this point, I think we actually need to finish with someone far greater. You see, if after these four chapters of Judges today, you're left feeling desperately wanting Jesus, then that's great. I think that's exactly where we're meant to be left. Desperately wanting Jesus. How much greater a saviour do we need than Samson? How much greater a saviour do we have in Jesus? We need a saviour who is pure and holy, who doesn't have eye disease or eye disease, who when he was tempted by the devil as he looked out on all the kingdoms of the world, he saw but he didn't take. He said no and he wanted to worship God alone. What relief there is in having a stable, predictable saviour rather than one who is out of control. What peace there is in having a saviour who not only could defeat the enemy if they wanted to, but actually does defeat our enemy in sin on the cross. What comfort there is in a saviour who doesn't use his superpower for selfish ends, 
for his eye disease, to satisfy his own lusts and passions, but he entered into a broken and sinful world, not asking, oh, gee, is it, is it going to hurt? I wonder what the food's like. You know, I'm not sure I'm really that keen. No, but he entered and he lived and he died, nailed to a cross for those who were his enemies while we were still sinners. There in Jesus is a saviour who sees people like you and me stuck in a downward spiral of eye disease that we're in and he draws us in and he transforms us to be like him to the praise of his glory. Amen.